Good morning, saints. I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Well, we are preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we have just turned the corner from chapter 5 into chapter 6, which we're simply calling Christian Living, Practical uh, Pointers in our Walk with Christ, what it looks like. Uh, to demonstrate a godly walk with the Lord, true piety. Piety is kind of an old word that just expresses your reverence for the Lord, your walk with Him, uh, your worship of Him, your service uh, to Him. Being the master teacher that Jesus is, uh, He is now going to make a shift in how He speaks to us. In chapter 5, you might recall, He spoke like this. You have heard it said... But I tell you, he would identify the current teachings of the religious leaders and say, actually, that's not what God said at all. Let me tell you what he actually said. Now, in chapter 6, he is teaching us how to walk with God, to love him, to serve him, to worship him, and to love our neighbor. So now he simply says, don't do this. He will now look at the example of the religious leaders in many cases and say, don't do it like that. Recall the true story I told last week of my brother Kevin uh, with the pastries and my mom forever after that, whenever we traveled, would sit us down and say, don't do that. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing in chapter 6. So recall our control verse, which is verse 1. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness uh, before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So we analyzed how he would flesh this teaching out in various aspects of our walk with the Lord. Key principles. Number one, these are little boxes that you can put things in. Number one, it is actually not about you. It's a surprising statement that you would even have to say that when you're worshiping God, it's not about you. But the problem is the examples that they were given, it was exactly that. It was all about the person. Second, we have an audience of one. Our focus is on him, not on ourselves, and certainly not on those around us. Third, we must always keep the eternal perspective. Fourth, or fifth, sorry. God loves you, and God will care for you. So thus far, we have looked at giving and prayer. And before we look at fasting this morning, the Lord has very clearly arrested my attention and put on my heart this morning to speak to an aspect of our Christian life that we don't speak to enough. And I believe it brings Jesus' teaching in this passage into sharp focus. So what is it that I'm speaking of? I'm speaking to the holiness of God, to his majesty, to his glory, to his power. To think about it, to reflect upon it, to ponder it, to meditate 
upon it. To know the presence of the Lord. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit without relying on other people's testimonies about that. God's word is full of compelling examples of this. I wonder if Job can speak to the holiness and the majesty and the power of God. Job, as you know, was a righteous man. He made offerings for his kids in case they sinned and didn't know about it. We know he was a righteous man. And we also know that quite suddenly he lost his own personal possessions, his wealth, his children. We know that his friends came and did the right thing. They sat with him in silence. But all of that went to pot when they started opening their mouth and lecturing Job. To which Job would plead his case. He would bitterly complain. And say that what has befallen upon him was utterly unjust. But it's not until the end of this book that Job has an epiphany. Job sees God. He says, I had heard of you. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now I see you. And I despise myself. And I repent in dust and ashes. Everything was put into order in his own thinking, in his mind, and in his heart. Despite the calamities that had befallen him. Because he saw God for who he is. He saw his holiness. He saw his majesty. And he realized and perceived that he does not need to have the answers to everything in life. Because God is on his throne. Move forward in the Old Testament. I wonder if Moses can speak to the majesty of God. You would think that Moses, given his upbringing, his unique upbringing, when he saw that bush that was burning but not consumed, that it would arrest his attention more than it did. For me, it's one of the most humorous passages in all the Bible, Exodus chapter 3 and 4. From that burning bush that was not consumed, God said, you're the man. I'm going to be with you. Moses talked back and said, no, I'm not. God said, actually, yes, you are. And I've chosen you. I prepared you for this great task. And Moses said, no, you got the wrong person. God says, I actually, Moses, look around. There's no one else here. It's you. You're the one. I'm going to go before you. I'll go with you. I'll work through you. Moses said, actually, you don't really know me well enough. You see, I can't speak clearly. I'm not a good spokesperson. 
God said, oh, really? You know, Moses, actually, I made your mouth. I made your tongue. I know you intimately. I know you better than you know yourself. Yeah, Moses, but you got the wrong person. You see, what Moses was doing is he was thinking logically about the most powerful man in the world at the time. And he, his proposition would be that he would like to exit his economic You know, what he was looking for in the Israelites was to build his kingdom literally and physically. And Moses said, yeah, you just, it's not me. You got it wrong. As we know, Moses would act in his own strength. He would kill an Egyptian. He would spend 40 years in the backside of the wilderness being prepared by the Lord. But I love this verse from Roman, from Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, when Moses left Egypt, he was not afraid of the anger of the most powerful human being on the face of the planet. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Oh, Moses couldn't see God with his own eyes. But Moses had learned who God is. And so the one who would stutter and stumble and be afraid and and forget about who God is and act impulsively in his strength and be denied how many times through the plagues was the one ultimately who led the people out of Egypt with confidence because why? He knew who God was and he saw God. Can we highlight Isaiah? I asked Eva to read this passage from Isaiah 6 because it is such a beautiful passage. And really what I'm getting at is this. In our worship of God, in our service to God, in our love for our neighbor, it must be underpinned by knowing who God is, really. And not taking him casually. Not taking our own walk with the Lord in a casual way. You might recall Isaiah chapter 6, Uzziah's long reign came to an end when he died. And it's not that he was the most godly of kings, it's just that he offered stability. And now he's gone. And now culture at large was about to honestly just go to pot. And so Isaiah was commissioned to literally tell the people that judgment is coming. That wasn't the job that Isaiah was looking for. Isaiah would be persecuted. Isaiah would die a martyr. Isaiah would have the unpopular message requiring repentance and holiness of God's people. It was a long and arduous Ministry that God had set Isaiah apart for. What was it that God gave Isaiah in the beginning to sustain him through the difficulties of ministry? Oh, he saw the Lord. He allowed Isaiah to see him for who he really is. 
to dispel the fear of man, to prepare him to suffer, to remind him that God does not change. He saw the Lord high and lifted up. Notice Isaiah's response. Verse 5. And I said, woe is me. I am undone. I'm lost. I am a man of unclean lips. Actually, no, he's not. He was a righteous man living among sinful people. But now, now he saw God. And he said, I'm going to put myself in the other category. I am a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That is all Isaiah needed to live a life of difficulty and misery and persecution and opposition in voicing the most unpopular message he could possibly give. Before the exile. Can we just imagine. That Rahab experienced the same. When she chose to house. The Israelite spies. Let's go to the New Testament. John the beloved disciple. Of Jesus. Well, now Jesus is resurrected and Jesus is ascended and Jesus is, as we know, Lord. John's response to him now was far different than it was when Jesus was walking with us. Revelation chapter one, verse 17. When I saw him, John says, when I saw the guy that I knew, that I lived with for years, I fell at his feet, though dead, because I saw his glory. I perceived his majesty. I perceived the one with whom I was in his presence. Please, I beg of you, put away the weak, anemic picture that so many of us have of Jesus, even in the book of Revelation. That's not who he is. He is King of kings, and he is Lord of lords. And what I am commending to you, to each of us, beginning with myself this week, is that we have a proper view of who God is. And that we don't rush through life from one crisis to another or from one act of busyness to another, but that we stop and we take it in. Because, saints, that's what we need to thrive as we follow Christ. That's what we need to serve Him well. That is what we need to love our neighbor. As ourselves. If we have this perspective, if we have this vision, if we have this understanding, and listen, it is so nice when we hear it from other people, when we read about it, when we study it, that is good. But don't stop there. Paul's prayer, after writing two letters to the dysfunctional Corinthian church, chapter 13, verse. 14, I think, of, chap- of the second letter. 
He says, may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be yours. Fellowship is intimacy. Fellowship is friendship. Fellowship is experiential. It's not just up here. You carry it here. But saints, here's the wonder of it all. When we commune with God, when we dare to go boldly before the throne of grace, which is our birthright now, notice what God says through Isaiah, chapter 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. Who inhabits eternity. Whose name is holy. Now, that's the same one that Isaiah obviously saw in chapter 6. That vision. God affirms, this is who I am. This is my essence. This is my being. He says, I, I dwell in a high and a holy place. But also with him who is of a contrite and a lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What I want to convey to you, what the Lord really impressed upon me this week is the majesty of who he is, that we never take this for granted, that we never offer our worship in any way in a casual sense but that we balance the blazing beauty of who God is with his heart for us that he loves and he longs to dwell with us particularly when we are heartbroken particularly when we are contrite particularly when we are aware of our shortcomings particularly When we see him for who he is. Worshiping together. Turning from sin. Serving together. All of these things are crucial. But our personal walk with the Lord. Is where we draw our true strength. Don't neglect it. Allow me to give you a personal example. I'll take you back to West Africa. This is miracle. We've we've told you about her. Her 27-year-old mother died while giving birth to her. And these loving people that we have the privilege of partnering with are raising her. Using, by the way, things that we have sent over. But here's what I want you to see. I hope you're moved by this. But I can tell you this from my own personal experience. Obviously, I've not met Miracle. But I've had the privilege and the honor of actually being there. I've seen the clinic. I've met the people. These are pictures to you. For me, they're real people that I prayed with, that I've met with. And I can only tell you how much more real it is for me because I've experienced it. And this is what I long for each and every one of us. That we would experience 
fellowship with God ourselves. It begins with personal discipline to set aside time for that. It requires stick-to-itiveness to actually follow through with it. But if you're living off of somebody else's testimony, you will run out of gas very quickly. Don't get me wrong. Testimonies are wonderful. But what I am impressing upon each and every one of us is this. In our walk with the Lord, what will fuel us, what will help us, what will support us, and what will comfort us is our own fellowship with the Lord now. With that as the backdrop, let us see what Jesus, how he instructs us regarding personal discipline. The, the contrast, I think, will be self-evident. So this is Matthew chapter 6. We're just going to read a few verses beginning in verse 16. And when you fast, notice he doesn't say if you choose to. He says when you do. He's assuming you will. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites over there, the religious leaders. For they disfigure their faces that that they're... Sorry, that it's just funny to me. They actually disfigure their their faces so other people can see this. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees you in secret will reward you so just as a backdrop fasting is a discipline that is very effective in our walk with the lord it can be an act of worship as well you can fast from any number of things most often we associate this with food You might know in the Old Testament, they were required to fast one time a year. One time a year. Our friends, the hypocrites, the Pharisees, well, by that time, they had upped that to twice a week. And when they fasted, they wanted you to know about it. But briefly, let's let's put... Jesus talking into the boxes that we've talked about. When you do fast, number one, it is actually not about you. Don't go about your fasting so that everybody else knows about it. There is no need for your fasting to go on social media. There's no need to do this so that other people know about it. To the best of your ability, as you're able, don't make this about yourself. When you fast, you have an audience of one. Your audience is not all the people you encounter during the day. It's between you and God. Third box. When you fast... Know that the Lord will reward you. Don't be like the hypocrites who got their entire reward by other people saying, oh my goodness, look at him, look at her, he's so holy, so awesome. 
Don't do that. And you see, this is the thing with the Sermon on the Mount. We should not take any of this legalistically. Know that Jesus is speaking about principles. He indeed is speaking about fasting. There are other spiritual disciplines that we may practice. You can take everything he just said about fasting and you can slide it over and you can apply it to that as well. What Jesus is telling us over and over and over again in our worship of God, in our service of God, as we serve other people, and as we seek to develop discipline within ourselves, it is not about us, it's about him. Now I'd like to show you one place in particular in the New Testament where Jesus shows us his heart. Matthew chapter 11, this is well known to us. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Where Jesus reveals his true nature. We know from the Gospels that that vision that Isaiah had in Isaiah 6 actually was of Christ. Jesus took on human nature. Jesus was obedient to death, even death on the cross. But though he is glorious and though he is himself God, know his heart for you. Verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I would propose to you that we all need soul rest. Life is hard. Take my yoke upon you. This is discipleship. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. Saints, if your picture of Jesus is anything but this, please align your picture of him with scripture. He is not upstairs waiting to squish you when you get it wrong. This is his disposition. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is difficult to follow Christ. It is difficult to follow Christ and to know what is right and to do it and not to accept that which is wrong, which is basically our entire culture. But he says, really? If you know me, it's not hard because I'm with you. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you. As Paul said, the life that I now live is not by myself, but by the son of God who is living through me. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we give you thanks and we give you praise. Thank you so much for sending the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ, the finished work of Jesus, upon which and upon whom we rest. Revive us this morning. 
Remind us of your deep love for us. Remind us that we are a redeemed people. That our deepest and our true identity now as Christ followers is not our background, not our occupation, not the color of our skin, but Christ who lives in us. The body of Christ. As Karen prayed so beautifully earlier, help us to encourage one another, to support one another, to help one another. Knowing full well that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is our Savior. Help us to turn away from those things which we know are wrong. Fill our minds with your truth and thoughts of you. Invigorate us, encourage us, and help us to live determinedly for you. All of these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.